Well, good morning. My name is Joe, and uh, I have the joy, the honor of preaching this morning, and uh, we need God's help, right? So let me pray before we get into it. Father, we just read that in the flesh, we cannot please you. So Lord, I pray that right now my preaching and speaking would be in the Spirit, in His power, in His strength, and thereby bring glory to you. I pray that my brothers and sisters here would be listening and thinking and reading your word according to the Spirit and the Spirit's power and strength. So Father, thank you. You've already met us. Would you continue to meet us and help us even now to worship you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as most of you are probably aware, we have been making our way through Paul's letter to the Romans here for the last number of months. And on this journey so far, the Apostle Paul has already led us through some very dark valleys, right? We've taken some very hard looks at our own hearts, our own rebellion against God as sinners, and his impending coming judgment and wrath. But these dark valleys have actually only served to make the glorious vistas of Romans even more stunning, right? Christ's gift of righteousness, freely given to us through faith. The promise, the hope that we're baptized into Jesus' death and raised up with him to life. Sin no longer has power over us or death. And we could go on and on. And there are some more darker valleys to come. We're going to dip into some in the text today. But there are even more glorious vistas still to come in Romans 8. Some today and even more coming in the weeks ahead. So before looking at today's text, verses 5 through 11 in chapter 8, I want to take a step back and notice this important shift that is happening here in Paul's letter to the Romans. So from chapters 1 to 7, Paul has focused mostly on God's saving work in and through his son, Jesus Christ. The emphasis, this emphasis hits a crescendo in Romans 8 verse 1, right? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We hit a high point, a high peak right there. It's a summary of everything from 1 to 7. Well now, as we turn into Romans 8, we heard a little bit of it last week. We're going to hear more in the weeks to come. The focus shifts more to God's work through the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now I need to say really clearly, emphatically here, that there's no conflict. There is one God. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is three in one. He is one in three. There's no division, no conflict, and his works are one. But Paul wants us to see clearly the role the Holy Spirit plays in our lives and in our salvation. And the evidence I see for this is from Romans chapter 1 to 7, Paul mentioned the Holy Spirit explicitly only five times, give or take. In chapter 8 alone, he mentions the Holy Spirit more than 15 times. I think you can count even more. 
Well, Paul began this emphasis on the Spirit's work in our lives in the verses we looked at last week, verses 1 through 4. And so look at it with me. In verse 4, Paul writes that there are two different types of people. One, there are those who walk according to the flesh, and two, those who walk according to the Spirit. Now what we're going to see in the passage today is that these two different types of people are radically, fundamentally different from one another. And even more importantly, they have drastically different destinies that await them. So what I want to do is walk through this text section by section this morning, and I break it down into three parts. That's how I see it. We have verses 5 and 6, verses 7 and 8, and then we end with verses 9 through 11. And I'm actually going to separate verse 9, and we'll look at that on its own. So let's begin with verses 5 and 6. Take a look at it there. In these two verses, Paul tells us more about these two different types of people that I just mentioned in verse 4. And Paul here brings to light the reason why these two different types of people walk differently. So whenever Paul, the apostle, speaks about walking, he's not talking about taking a hike in the woods or a stroll in the neighborhood. No, he's talking about the way in which we live our life. That is, both our conduct and the very focus, the aim, the goal of our life, lives. So in verses 5 and 6, Paul says that the, per, that the reason the person of the flesh and the person of the Spirit walk so differently is because they have different mindsets. Do you see that? So an important question to ask this morning of the text is this. What does Paul mean by setting one's mind on something. Paul says these two groups, they have their mind set on different things. Well, I think it goes almost without saying, although I'm going to say some things about it, that setting your mind on something is different than just thinking about it, right? For example, a man thinking about getting married to a woman, that might be nice someday at some time, is very different from a man who's set his mind on marrying a specific woman. The second man, he's not only thought about married, he's made a decision. He's going to make a commitment to a specific woman. So he's engaging his mind, and therefore his will. And he's setting the whole course, the direction of his life, to marry this woman and spend the rest of his life with her. So, what Paul says, when he, what he means when he says setting one's mind in these verses is he's saying that the entire direction, the very focus and the pursuits of these two different people are radically different. Those living according to the Spirit set their minds, that is, pursue with their whole being the things of the Spirit. While those living according to the flesh set their minds, that is, pursue with their whole being the things of the flesh. Well, this leads us to our next question. What does Paul mean by the things of the flesh and the things of the Spirit? Very important question. And it's best if we let Paul 
answer this one for himself. So in Romans chapter 7, verse 5, we read this. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So the quick answer to what is what are the things of the flesh? They are sinful passions. But Paul is actually even more descriptive of what these passions are in his letter to the Galatians. In chapter 5, he writes this. Long list here. Be ready. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Now, I would argue, if we step back from this long list, we can see two realities here. First, the person of the flesh hates God. They are idolaters. They are lovers of themselves, not lovers of God. And secondly, there's a lot of hate of other people here. They hate other people. They use people to gratify their own desires, and then they live lives filled with hatred of everyone who stands in the way of them getting what they want. Not the type of people we want to be, right? I hope. Nor be around. Well, Paul, thankfully, contrasts the people, the, pers- the desires of the flesh with those of the Spirit right in the same section in Galatians 5. And he writes this, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Maybe I should let you finish it. Some of you know this list. Self-control. Against such things there is no law. What an amazing, stark contrast. Here we see love of God abounding. Love of others abounding. Right? So in summary, the things of the flesh are those practices, those things that we do that reveal hatred for God and hatred for others. And the things of the Spirit show the love of God and the love of others. Well, before moving on in these verses, look at verse 6 and notice, notice the very different outcomes for these two types of people, right? Those who set their minds on the flesh die, but those who set their mind on the Spirit enjoy life and peace. We're going to pick up more on this as we walk through the text. But let's stop here for a moment, right? Let's consider our own mindsets. What is your mindset this morning? Are you someone living for the flesh and its desires? Or are you living according to the Spirit, desiring, pursuing the things of the Spirit? In Romans chapter 7 and in Galatians chapter 5, Paul makes clear that as believers in Jesus, as Christians, although we're 100% righteous, fully forgiven, no condemnation, we still struggle with sin. We do 
desire and at times pursue the things of the flesh. But Paul's point here in these verses, this is really important, is not to talk about this struggle. Rather, he's saying there are fundamentally two categories of people in this world. Well, binaries, big word, are out of fashion these days. Certain cultures around the world, my own home culture, many don't like, indeed outright deny, God-intended distinctions and differences. Well, here in Romans 8, verses 5 and 6, we are faced with a binary reality, one way or the other, of eternal significance. And the reality is this. Each and every one of us at this moment is a person either living according to the flesh or living according to the Spirit. Either we're dying in sin and heading all the more to death, or we're alive in the Spirit and moving to eternal life in God's presence because of Christ's righteousness. So what does your mindset tell you this morning? Which type of person are you? Is your life oriented towards God, the things of the Spirit, or to the flesh? Let's move on to verses 7 and 8. And we're going deeper down into a dark valley, just to warn you. This is, Paul lays it out. He's not afraid of truth. Truth is hard. And we got to take it in because we also want to get up to those greater peaks that are to come. So, in verses 7 and 8, Paul goes into greater detail about this person who lives according to the flesh. And I see three truths that I want to highlight to draw out from these two verses. First truth, the mindset of the flesh is hostile to God. I think that's the main point of verses 7 and 8. The next two points I'll mention support it. Well, hostile, that's a strange word. Probably don't use it very often. It means that when we live according to the flesh, we are God's enemy. And we need to remember, go back to Romans 1 if you were with us, or if you know the book, you don't, read it later. We need to remind ourselves of the root problem that we have as sinners, right? It's our rejection of God as God. Each and every one of us, when confronted with the glorious reality of God's sovereign power and goodness, we choose to reject him. We have willfully decided to worship and serve the creature, mostly ourselves, rather than the creator who is blessed forever. We became God's enemies when we said, no God, I don't need you, I don't want you, I will do as I please. That's when we became God's enemy. He didn't turn on us, we turned on him. So, the mindset of the flesh is our natural state, as those who are sinners by nature. You can recall all of Romans up to this point, right? Well, the second thing we see is that the mindset of the flesh doesn't submit to God's law. The reason we are enemies of God left in our natural state is because we don't submit to his law. If there's a king, you keep the laws of the king. We are all very good at keeping laws here in this country, right? 
to follow the law. So what is the first and greatest commandment? Moses, God gave it to Moses. Jesus reminded us, love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. The mindset of the flesh says, no, I will love myself with all my heart and with all my soul. What is the second greatest commandment? It's in Leviticus. Jesus speaks about it in his ministry. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. What does the mindset of the flesh say? Everyone is my servant and everything to satisfy my needs, my wants, my desires on my time schedule, right? So why do marriages fail? Why do friendships fall apart? Well, it's because the mind set on the flesh always rejects God and is always seeking to use others for our own gratification. That's heavy. One more thing. Number three, the mind, and this is the most shocking, the mindset on the flesh means we cannot please God. We're not even able to do so. That is striking. So some of you here this morning have likely thought about sin in your life as a, as a mere mistake, perhaps you make from time to time, or a small sin that you do, like cheating on a test, or telling a few lies at work to, to cover some mistakes you made. Well, the Bible is clear. These are sins. But the Bible is even more clear that sin is a much deeper more pervasive reality in your life than you or me really realize. We need God's light to shine in to see this. So, a sinner, that is someone without God's Spirit, is a person whose mind is set on the flesh. This means they live not under the power of God and His grace, but under the power of sin and its corrupting influence. Paul is speaking here of sin as the flesh, and the flesh as an enslaving power that we have all inherited from Adam and Eve. So the reason we can't please God, the reason we don't submit to His law, the reason we have mindsets of the flesh is because we're living under the power of sin. And if you need some review, go back. Chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7 of Romans, right? Paul's building on it as we go. So keep going back. So this is our natural state. Apart from God's saving work in our lives through Jesus Christ and by the power of His Spirit, we are unwilling and unable to turn to God and reform our lives. And sadly, this is as natural to us as breathing in the air. Okay, we've gone down to the bottom of that valley. And Paul takes us quickly up to a vista. Here it is, verse 9. Right? He refreshes us here with the gospel. And he does it in just an amazing way. Note this. He, writing, but you can hear him almost preaching, he says to the Roman Christians, to whom he writes, most of whom he's never met in person, says this, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. I believe that if the Apostle Paul was here this morning, 
Well, first, I believe we'd give him the pulpit. I think everyone would agree. I think he would stand up here this morning and joyfully and confidently say to each and every one of you trusting in Jesus, you are not in the flesh. You are in the Spirit. We need to receive that declaration. Just take hold of it. Own it. It's yours. It's true. So, if you're trusting in Jesus this morning, there is no condemnation over you. Right? And let's follow Paul's logic. It's a logic that begins in verse 1 of chapter 8, and it goes right up to chapter 9. Here's the logic. Paul likes logic. Those in Christ by faith belong to Jesus Christ. Those who belong to Jesus Christ have the Spirit of Christ dwelling in them. This is the glorious gospel logic of Romans, of Paul's writing here. And practically speaking, it means this. We as believers in Jesus are no longer in the flesh or in sin. Sin is no longer the dominating reality in our lives. The Spirit of God, His holy presence, is the dominating reality in our lives. Isn't that amazing? So by faith and the powerful saving work of God in Christ and by His Spirit, we have passed from death in sin to life in the Spirit. And this means that the defining mark of a true Christian is the presence of the Holy Spirit. And the way that we have evidence of the Spirit in our lives is that we have a new mindset. And we have a new course and a new direction in our life. And we are pursuing the things of the Spirit. Well, I know in a room this size with this many people, there are undoubtedly some, when you hear this declaration, you are in the Spirit, doesn't strike you as good news. And Paul knows that in the church in Rome, there's probably some hearing the letter written who are also in the same place. So I gently, graciously want to say to you this morning, if you are not presently trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you do not have the Spirit of God. God gives His Spirit to those who turn from living self-centered lives, flesh-driven lives, and begin to trust in Jesus as Christ, as Savior, as Lord and treasure. So I urge you, if you're still in the flesh, turn to Jesus. You will find that He is a great, great friend of sinners if we turn to Him, if we trust Him. But there's another group of people here this morning who are Christians, who are trusting in Jesus. Likely, maybe, you've been baptized. And when you hear this uh, conditional statement in verse 9, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, you get scared. This sends you down a, a spiral. You start going downward. Some of us are wired this way, right? We quickly think and wonder, maybe assume, I'm in this group. I don't have the Spirit. Well, I want to give two encouragements to you if that's where you're at this morning. First encouragement, remember the message of Romans, right? What's the message that Paul's been telling us? We are saved solely through faith 
in Jesus' name, not by how much we demonstrate the work of the Spirit in our lives through good works, through prayer, or through special gifts like prophecy or tongues. No, Jesus saves. Jesus assures those who turn to him with the simplest and even smallest of faith. This is one of my favorite prayers, and this is the prayer you need to say if you're in this place. Lord, I believe you, but please help my unbelief. So turn to Jesus. Say that prayer. Lord, I do believe. Please help my unbelief. If you're praying that, I am quite confident you have the Spirit. That's humility. That's turning to Jesus. But a second encouragement. If you're struggling with this assurance that you have the Spirit of God, question, are you seeking out? Are you pursuing? Are you staying committed to Christian community? It's your brothers, your sisters in Christ who will encourage you and who will affirm you day in and day out, yes, I see the Spirit of God in you. You're living differently. You bless me. You love, you're loving and serving these people. That's what we need in Christian fellowship. But if you don't have it, if you're separated from it, you are going to get to a point where you begin to doubt whether you have the Spirit of God. And if you don't doubt it and you're in that place, you are in a very, very dangerous spot. So it's in Christian community, through encouragement from one another, as brothers, as sisters, that we are affirmed of our glorious status as those who are in Christ with no condemnation and who have the Spirit. So a practical step. Commit to Christian community. Consider making Grace Church your home in this season of life. Maybe it's only one month. Maybe it's two months. Well, a lot can happen for better or worse in one month. So consider committing to this church. If not this church, well, get on to the next one next week and commit somewhere, right? We need Christian community. Also consider getting involved in a home group. All right, verses 10 and 11, coming to the end here. Well, the passage ends all the more on a high note. So Paul's taking us further up. That's great. We've gone pretty low. Let's go even higher here. I hope that you've already been massively encouraged by the truths that Paul has written to us. But Paul's not done. He's got even more good news for us in this passage. Well, so far, we have focused mostly on the present gospel realities in our lives. That is, how we have the Spirit with us now, and we have new mindsets, and we walk according to the Spirit. But Paul wants us to look up from this vista, this outlook, and see what is to come of the future blessings of salvation. So let, let me read again this verse, verse 10. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So notice, Paul begins here again with the truth that we are in Christ. He is in us. And this means, we've already talked about it, the logic, the Spirit is in us too. Now what's really interesting, in fact perplexing, it should be perplexing to you, if you really track the gospel, this should be perplexing to you, is how is it 
that if we have the living, indomitable Christ living in us, if we have his spirit, who was, who is, who is to come, how are we still in bodies that are dying? Well, I don't have an answer for you. But I do know that every one of us, whether you're a believer in Jesus or not, this morning, you live in a mortal body. You are in a body that is destined to die and to decay. Some of you feel it, know it. It's very real. You don't need the Apostle Paul getting into your life and telling you more about it. You're good. You know it. But many of you, perhaps most of you, I don't know, have never thought about the fact that your body is even now moving towards death. Paul says, the body is dead because of sin, Adam's sin, our sin. But, Paul contrasts this with the Spirit who is life. The the Spirit is life in us because of righteousness, because of Christ's righteousness. But Paul puts it another way in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. I think this is helpful. Paul says this, So, we do not lose heart. The outer self is wasting away, and our inner self is being renewed day by day. So our inner person, that is our hearts, our minds, our wills, are alive like never before because of Christ, because of his Spirit. We are truly alive now in the Spirit, and yet God, for some reason in his wisdom, has left us in bodies that still die and decay. But again, we have Paul bringing us up to the high point. Look at verse 11. Here's the good news. If you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you, God assures you that he will one day, on that last day when Jesus returns, he will give life to your mortal body. And he will do it through his Spirit who now dwells in you. So God's going to give life to your mortal body, whether it's dead and decaying in a graveyard somewhere around the world, or it's blowing in a million pieces like dust in the wind, God, Jesus, is going to raise your body up and give life to it. And Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, if you happen to still be alive in this body that's dying when Jesus returns, in the twinkling of an eye, in a moment, you will be transformed. Your mortal body will become an immortal one. The perishable will take on the imperishable in a moment. That's our hope. That's the salvation that Christ has secured for us. And it's yours. It's yours this morning if you are trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. You're trusting in him for the promise of eternal life. He will one day Give life to your mortal body. This body, the body you have now, he will give life to it when he returns by his Spirit. So wrapping this up, very short. My hope, my prayer for you this morning is that if you are a believer in Jesus, you're going to go from this room, I hope, thinking perhaps more deeply and rejoicing even more in the Holy Spirit that he is in you, 
and all that that means for you now and for eternity. So rejoice, rejoice in the Spirit of God. You are in the Spirit. And if you're not trusting in Jesus, if you don't have assurance of His Spirit, we're happy you're here. We're happy to talk more with you about this. Maybe this sounds absolutely crazy. We understand. We live in this world too. We know, you know how people think, and we'd love to talk more with you. I'll talk more about how we do that afterwards. But let me close in prayer for us. Father, we, we thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the Apostle Paul and the letter to the Romans. Thank you for truth, Lord. Truth that is hard and difficult, and yet how hard truths lead, humble us and lead us up into your grace and to see your glory all the more. So, Father, I pray encouragement for my brothers and sisters in Christ here. I pray for a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I pray that we would leave here singing, rejoicing in the Spirit. Lord, those who feel far off, distant from you, Lord, draw near. Make yourself known. Jesus, you are the great friend of sinners, and you give your Spirit freely. Come in power, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.